0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Would you like a ticket to enjoy the revelry of Noonight's Affair? Our Patreon is a place where you can see all the sordid savagery and indecent decadence of the mysteries of our fair city. Want some answers for once? Solve the mysteries and share never-before-heard stories, music, and spectacles. Come be a part of Moonlight Affair, Silent Treatment, and Selene with the other spirits again, again, and 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 again. Remember me when I am gone away, gone far away into the silent land, when you can no more hold me by the hand. Remember me when I am gone away. Mr. Pedigree's doll hospital started out as a flower stand in a small space off an alley on Trace Street. The previous owner went out of business and Mr. Pedigree bought it for a song. A traveling salesman by trade, he'd wanted a place to set up a toy shop. After several customers brought their dolls in for repairs, Mr. Pedigree realized that he could stand out among the other toy shops by specializing in dolls. One side of the store sold new dolls for collectors and children. And the other saw to the needs of any damaged doll in the city. Mr. Pedigree used his fast-talking abilities to charm little tykes and earn the trust with their special friends. Now, for any doll needs, Pedigree's was the place. The doll hospital addressed emergencies in the night and had long waiting lines during the day. Pedigree learned early to take each patient extremely seriously. He gave each doll a thorough examination and diagnosis, complete with a doctor's note with scribbled instructions and a doctor's autograph. On this warm afternoon, Constable Hughes, who was not really a constable at the moment, suspended for tampering with evidence among many other infractions, walked his little friend Maisie, a gifted young girl working for a mysterious department, to Mr. Pedigree's Doll Hospital off of Trace Street. Maisie had been in an argument with the daughter of the Salt Baron, and Temperance Fulcrum had shoved her and broken her doll, Mr. Fitz. They walked out of Lanula Park, past the Nightshade Cafe, past the bakery, across the street and around the haberdashery and Milliner, past the glove salon and the jewelry stores, and under the looming shadow of the elegant Duchess Hotel, a hotel that lived in a dark shadow even in summer. The streets were filled with carts and merchants, a couple new electric carriages, and the train car pulling down its tracks with a bright look of paint and forest greens and reds. They turned down Trace Street, under the sign for the soda fountain, down two quiet storefronts, and then to the colorful corner of the doll hospital. The window filled with dolls of every variety, standing and sitting, waving and pushing prams. A line bursting out the front of girls and boys jumping up and down trying to look inside to pick out their new friends. Hughes stopped to look in the window. This is the place, Maisie. Does it have to be so bright? She asked. Hughes sidestepped the line of shoppers and pushed Maisie in the front door. The shop had shelves from floor to ceiling. One side displayed dolls in various scenarios, picnics, and dinner parties standing around the hall of a great dollhouse, having a very serious conversation. Every possible perspective, persuasion. Fashions and options from the casual to the formal, all ready for someone to love and play with. On the left hand of the shop, a section of counter and tight shelves filled with every doll part, head, arms, legs, feet, lengths of hair, and in the counter a series of eyes in every shade imaginable. The left side was dressed up to look like a clinic, complete with waiting room, storybooks and puzzles, a line with a ticket, and a curtain and exam table. Mr. Pedigree stood in the center of the shop, a striped apron, a straw hat, and a barrel of a belly pushing out the buttons of his loud shirt. He patted his rosy cheeks and gave his wax mustache a twirl and sported a happy grin. He came out from behind the counter, kneeled down, and greeted each kid at eye level with a formal, how to do? I did the same for each doll, knowing each one by name. When selling a doll, each one had an elaborate backstory. He knew all of them by heart, and of course each tale came to the end of how they needed a friend in a new home, something fierce. Riling each kid up into a desperate plea to their parents that they must save them. They needed so much love and caring. Mr. Pedigree returned a fixed-up doll to its owner, an older woman who looked concerned. As soon as Mr. Pedigree lifted the doll up, the owner's expression changed immediately. The doll, Leanne, was delicate, hair down to her feet, her right arm taped and a bandage applied. Now fixed, the owner looked on it with such sweet affection. She herself now six again in pigtails, plotting elaborate capers to pilfer more of Mother's ginger snaps from the ceramic jar, situated high on a shelf like a fortress. Leanne would cause a diversion while she grabbed a chair for climbing. She thanked Mr. Pedigree with great admiration and tried to tip him, which he refused and waved goodbye to Leanne. Hughes nudged Maisie up to the clinic counter and took a few steps back, pretending to read the covers of the storybooks on the waiting table. Maisie sheepishly approached. Mr. Pedigree reaffixed his giant grin, walked backwards behind his counter, slumped down with his elbows, changing his expression to a frown. Did someone get a boo-boo, he asked Maisie. No, sir, she said. I'm looking for a new doll. Something in the Sympathetic Magic variety. Uh, what? Mr. Predigree seemed confused. Hughes coughed loudly. (coughs) Maisie changed her tone. Uh, I mean, my dolly has a boo-boo. Ah, Mr. Predigree said. Well, then. Let's have a look. He took off his straw hat and strapped a doctor's reflecting mirror to his head. He reached behind him and slipped on a doctor's white coat. Maisie placed the crumpled paper bag on the counter and shook some remaining breadcrumbs loose. Pedigree brushed them away, looking annoyed for only a second, and then reached for the bag. Maisie had a hard time letting go. Mr. Fitz is delicate. I need him put back together so I can hear him talk to me. Pedigree had heard many pleas before, each one desperate. He took each one desperately serious. "'Well, yes, Mrs. Maisie, we'll have a look-see,' he opened the bag and pulled out the parts of Mr. fitz the wood-egg body and the jangly arms and legs. "'Ooh, I see we have had a tumble. "'Such a sad face, mister.' He looked over the parts and examined the body. He saw the sallow face and odd construction. "'Where did you acquire Mr. Fitz?' he asked. I made him, Maisie said. Myself. Well, Miss Maisie, I would say Mr. Fitz needs a fix. I think we can set him over here. And if you just want to have a seat over there, we'll get him right as rain. Maisie didn't budge. Uh He's not going far, he said, placing him on the exam table. Pedigree brought out a set of tiny tools, some sewing implements, wires, stuffing, screws, various glues. Maisie didn't budge. You wouldn't believe the things we see here at the hospital. Kids can be so savage. Poked out eyes, ripped limbs. I even treated a boiled doll once. Proceed, doctor, Maisie said. If you're going to be my nurse today, you'll need the proper attire. He handed her a nurse hat and surgical mask. Maisie put them on watching with a flat expression behind Pedigree sang a little tune as he put fits back together Ya ta 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 A little wire to secure the limbs some glue to reset the sockets and ti ti da we put them back in Maisie wrung her hands around the bag nervous Okay, Pedigree straightened and pushed a hand into his lower back with a little groan. A success, he said. Wait a few moments for the glue to set, and we'll release the patient. You can give me those back. Maisie replaced the nurse hat with her trilby, but hesitated with the mask. Ah, hmm. She handed it to him. Pedigree went over to a pad and wrote out a diagnosis, a list of treatment, and even a prescription for some warm chamomile tea, Madeline's, and a storybook. He ripped it off the pad and handed it to Maisie, waved the bill at Hughes, who pulled a few coins out of his pocket and dumped them on the counter. Pedigree scooted them over the glass with one finger and put them in the register. "'Thank you,' he said. "'Now, Miss Maisie, just one more thing,' he looked at her with a gleam in his eye. A few moments later, he tested Fitz, and everything was back like new, even stronger than before. Pedigree then reached under the counter. "'For extra-special girls with extra-special dolls like Mr. Fitz here,' "'I want you to have this.' Pedigree had an oleander blossom tightly wrapped in brown paper. "'Now you must never touch it. "'That's its magic. "'But take this with you to protect Mr. Fitz and yourself.' Hughes thanked him. Pedigree removed his doctor mirror, grabbed his straw hat, and waved them out with a hearty goodbye before leaping into the next fray of little kids eager to buy a new doll. "'There,' Hughes said. Maisie seemed relieved. Clear of the trouble, her emotions drained from her face, and she adopted her usual, more flatter tone. I, uh, I... Thanks, Constable. Call me Huey. I suppose Shinder does. Hughes gave her a pat, waved bye to Fitz, as she placed him back in her pocket. Thanks, Huey, she said. He looked to the street for a carriage. Maisie stepped into the shadow of the awning. When Hughes turned back... She was gone. The Cupid doll effect explains how a child's adorable physical features, such as long forehead, rounded face, and plump cheeks, inspires in others the urge to take care of them, much like kids take care of their dolls. The primary care not only being love and attention, but also, of course, feeding. Charity Suter and Edmund Green were sitting at his long dining table, eating a lunch of goat cheese, fig canapes, and a thin mock turtle soup. Edmund wasn't eating much. He was too excited and kept peering into the hall where the workers were setting up his new display. As you can imagine, mock turtle soup was invented from there being a lack of real turtles, as they were now nowhere to be found. A sort of methadone treatment for the addicts who had the lingering taste for Calydra serpentina. If you'd like to make some for yourself, perhaps while enjoying a little Lewis Carroll, I would suggest browning some ground meat with half an onion, add a cup of ketchup, healthy amount of Worcestershire sauce, a few hard-boiled eggs, some aged sherry from the Nightshade Cafe, a few of Mother's ginger snaps crushed, and salt and pepper to taste. It was Edmund's favorite. And whenever Eleanor had it as a daily soup at the Nightshade Cafe, he had some brought over for lunch, with some extra servings put on ice for the week. Charity enjoyed it, was grateful it wasn't real turtle, but had hers thinned out a bit so as not to induce an afternoon nap. Charity waited until partway through lunch to ask him about the new addition to the home. He hadn't volunteered anything, so she tried to nudge. Edmund. Are you going to tell me what it is? You aren't going to make me wait like everyone else, are you? It's not a stuffed animal, is it? Some manly and ferocious taxidermy? Edmund scoffed, pulled open the paper. You'll have to wait and see. This will be the first time I'll be meeting any of your friends. I suppose I'll introduce myself as the governess, although not sure I should posture myself as the help. Enoch was up in his room, sitting with some open books. Charity sipped at her soup, the workers in the hallway scuffling about, Edmund's face behind the lantern paper. Charity felt something strange. Something ran through her extremities. She felt a wave of dizziness and vertigo. Assuming it was from missing breakfast, she steadied herself against the table, tried to take another bite of her soup. Her hand jerked on its own, like an intense shock from her elbow to her fingers. The spoon flung out of her hand, skipped off the bowl and onto the tablecloth. Edmund bent the paper back to glance at her. Charity flexed her hand a few times and looked to see if she'd hit her funny bone on something. It was just an odd flinch. Charity excused herself to lie down for a moment. Edmund wasn't too concerned. There was only once he'd heard about Mock Turtle Soup being lethal. And even then... Enough people thought the vichyssoise was the real culprit. To measure the lethality of a mock turtle, we must examine the number of deaths as a result of mock turtle soup consumption. And so that, at last count, well, that number might just be one. However, that in itself is a little complicated. Sergi and his lover Hadrian were a pair of journeyman musicians who had acquired a small but steady gig performing at the Carousel Bar at the Duchess Hotel six nights a week. They provided a mixture of violin music and light comedy from a small stage with a red velvet curtain. Sergei and Hadrian were able to acquire board at the Duchess in an interior windowless room that was more like a broom closet with a sink, just big enough for two beds and a dressing screen as a room divider. They were allotted one free meal a day. So every day after their set, their manager Andre would bring in the same meal on a room-service cart. A hot bowl of mock turtle soup for Sergei, the real stuff was too expensive, and a cold bowl of soir for Hadrian. Hadrian liked to keep his mood low and didn't like eating anything that excited the blood. Their manager Andre was a former boxer who had turned promoter managed Madison Fighters as well as a few musical acts across the city. He was unscrupulous and tough and ignored the talent's complaints whenever they had any. His ultimate dream was to save enough to open a club of his own to feature a lineup of all of his acts. Sergei had been complaining of their low wages and he and Andre were pushing the hotel management to pay the brothers a higher fee, most of which Andre was going to pocket. Hadrian didn't want to rock the boat and lose the one good gig that they'd ever had One night, Andre decided to take matters into his own hands. A banquet of famous guests had decided to come to the bar for some late-night entertainment. While the brothers were performing, and Hadrian was getting to the climax of his violin piece, the bar lights cut out, and one woman's famous pearl necklace disappeared from around her neck. When the lights were restored, a mad search went through the hotel, with every guest and carpet and room overturned looking for the priceless pearl. Needle Street covered the exits, and Andre got desperate. Sergei and Hadrian were seen arguing backstage, and the argument got heated. Both of them were searched. Sergei had a few drinks and returned to the room. He went to sleep without eating. Hadrian decided to walk the halls to clear his head. In the early morning, Andre knocked on the door, and upon entering, found Hadrian slumped in his chair, face blue, choked to death. No sign of forced entry into the room, and only some kind of marks around his neck to indicate what had happened. Sergei was distraught and denied killing him. Andre offered to follow the body to the examiner to make arrangements. Needle Street, without any other reasonable suspects, pinned the murder on Sergei based on witness testimony of the argument and the marks on his neck. Sergei was sent to the workhouse, and after a few years, Andre opened up his nightclub. What do you think? Was the mock turtle soup the real killer? In the lingering light of Lanula Park, Hughes had returned from the doll hospital. He took a stroll down his usual beat and sat on a bench, sipping at a warm bottle of beer. He watched the light fade and the gaslights come up. No one seemed to recognize him while he wasn't in uniform. The ducks brushed aside as a colorful peacock waddled up between them and pushed its nose into some of the crumbs. It took a sniff and looked up and blinked at Hughes. "'Hello there, Plum,' he said, recognizing the peacock. Plum's leash led back to a hunched man wiping his mostly bald brow with his handkerchief, and he gave his mustache a swipe. It was Pumble, Madame Viola's manservant and butler of the house Lavendula. "'Mr. Pumble. "'How's things?' "'I almost didn't recognize you out of uniform, Constable.' Hughes nodded. Are you still with Needle Street? Madame Viola had high praise for you and Inspector Bennett after Plum's safe return. He looked around to see if anyone was listening. And I'm surely grateful you kept things under wraps. She's much better lately since the return to regular doses of her medicine. Good to hear. I've been put on rest for a short while. Still need to feed my ducks, though, he said. Ah, Humble said, watching them eat. So, about that. Madame has a great many papers. Several of the rooms at Lavendula are stacked with them. Boxes and boxes. He mined boxes to the ceiling. And, well... Somewhere in those boxes, she has a document for everything the family has ever transacted. The business, medical records, you name it. Since you've already proven your discretion, I wonder if you might be able to help on a matter concerning a lost document. Well, more forgotten. You see, Madame Viola has been talking a great deal about her sister Vivian. Yes, I can see by the surprise on your face you didn't know she had a sister, but she did. Or does? It's that, well, when they were younger, Vivian had some issues and was sent away for treatment. Madame even had a dream about her recently, and she's been asking why she hasn't heard from Vivian. I'm afraid she's forgotten. Poor Vivian probably hasn't heard from anyone in years, if not longer. I went looking for any records, but haven't been able to find them. Pumble pulled out a piece of paper from his pocket. Clearly he'd been prepared for this as it was premeditated. Do you think you could look into your files at Needle Street to see if you can track her down? Madam would be willing to pay handsomely. He handed him the paper that had the name written on it. Of course it would be Madam's maiden name. Vivian Voldat. Hughes took the paper. Money had been a little tight and he was going stir-crazy while Stroud considered any punishments. "'I suppose I could look into it,' Hughes said. Pumble looked relieved. Hughes gave Plum a light pat on the head and fed him some bread. "'May I stress again discretion. Many vultures would love to find any leverage against Madame Viola and relieve her of her fortune.' We must make every effort to avoid a scandal. Humble saw Madame Viola's light in her office window, and he rushed back home to quickly make her evening lavender. The sun set. Hughes made his way back home as darkness descended across the houses of Park Row. Iviana sat in the window, reading nook of her room. Her father had built the space just for her to sit and enjoy her library of books. Her mother added soft velvet cushions so she could lounge in the sunbeams turning pages. Tonight, she sat in the window with Matilda, her new doll. They wore matching nightgowns, Ivy Anna praising and complimenting her, brushing her hair. Her mother called up that it was time for sleep. She tucked Matilda under the blanket, left the sprig of paper wrapped Oleander on her nightstand. Her mother came in and turned out the lamp, gave her daughter a kiss, and one for Matilda too. She retired downstairs to the fire with her husband. Iviana closed her eyes and pulled up the blanket. She felt a hand across to hold Matilda's, asking her to remember her dreams so she could recount them in the morning. Outside, the streetlights began to dim. The noises began to mute as people hustled inside for dinner and home fire conversations. Shuttered windows and locked doors. A chill cut through the summer night air as Wisps crept down the lines of brick and cobblestone. Long, dark fingers of night stretched out and pulled along a thin, dusty film until a dark fog filled the streets outside Iviana's window, hushing everything until even the smallest sounds fell quiet. And then the clang of chains far away at first, and then wheels against the earth crunch of gravel and stone and shake as the carriage shimmied, the darkness that creaked and groaned on iron shocks along roads of smoke and ash. The driver a bent man with crooked teeth and a dirty bag staring with the smudged coal fingers. The black Volga came in the mid-dark of night to stop under Ivy Anna's window to tear her away from her sweet Matilda. Hold tight to the covers. It's just the wind in the shutters. There's no such thing as Coalfinger. In the next episode of Selene.